The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Good morning. If you're new here, I'm glad you are with us today. My name is Chase, and I'm one of the pastors here at TBC. We are in about the third week of a series on the book of Galatians. We're calling One. So before we get started today, we want to pause and thank God and pray for Trinity Heights Church. Several years ago, one of our pastors and his wife, Stephen and Julia Chung, we had been to New York City on a staff trip together, and they began to pray and dream about planting a church right in the middle of the Upper West Side of Manhattan, uh, in a heart of an area where there are many skeptics and intellectual elites, and they continued to pray, and then we as church leaders began to join with them and pray with them, and after many kind of pre-events and launch events, this morning, in fact, right now, it's 10 o'clock here, 11 a.m. in Manhattan, the first worship service of Trinity Heights Church is starting. So we want to praise God for that. I, I can't think of a better couple, a better person in Stephen to be there proclaiming Jesus to these folks. We're going to pray for them. So Father, we thank you, God, for the gift that the Chungs were to Temple Bible Church. And God, we thank you for the gifts now that they will be to the Upper West Side. And we pray for your hand of blessing and grace on Trinity Heights Church, Father, that you would give them wisdom and love for people as they seek to serve you and make much of your son there. In Jesus' name, amen. So a couple of things as well as we get rolling. Um, number one, we've got a Global Impact Faith at Work Conference, October 21st, Saturday, October 22nd. That's an opportunity to learn about how to express your faith at work, make disciples in the workplace on Friday night, and then Saturday morning, you'll hear about global opportunities to be an employee and serve Jesus uh, around the world through employment. Also, want to mention that the drop is next Sunday. Um, we love the drop here. On the first Sunday of every month, we take bags of non-perishable food items, place them behind our cars, and a partner ministry, Churches Touching Lives for Christ, delivers that food to needy families in our area. We'd love next week to see a bag behind every car. So put that in your phone, or if you have a hard calendar like my wife uh, and ancient other people do, then you can put it in there. Love you, honey. And uh, just remember that next Sunday. One more thing, just by way of thanks. This is a friend of mine named Enoch. He's in his 60s, and he pastors in Rwanda. And you, you sent me and Harold Williams to do a pastor's conference and conference for mechanics. And, and as part of our pastor's conference, every pastor received a, a, a commentary on Ephesians and a study Bible. And Enoch, who's a very respected man among these pastors, asked to share something. And several years ago, one of Enoch's friends got a study Bible, and he was so excited about it that he asked him, could he borrow it? He had saved money, and he went and made as many photocopies as he could, about 100 pages of Scripture, so that he could study the Scripture better, be a better pastor. And he was smiling, and his voice was trembling as he said, I, I never imagined I would have one in my hands that was my own. So thank you for your gifts, number one, your generosity and your prayer for us. And number two, if you have a Bible, read it. It's a gift from God.
Now let's get started in Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, where Peter and Paul have an incident of apostolic proportions over race and righteousness. It's a big incident. It happens in one of the most important cities in church history, in biblical Antioch, now in modern-day Turkey. We actually have workers that serve there who are on home assignment. It's a Muslim city today, but it became the center of church history as there was a shift from there to Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas actually spent a year there, and uh, Acts 11.26 says they were with the church, and they taught a great many people. Many came to faith in Antioch, and in Antioch, it's the place where the disciples were first called Christians. About a chapter after this, the church would then launch Saul and Barnabas, or Paul and Barnabas, on their first missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas are there, and they're enjoying fellowship, and they're teaching their new Gentile brothers in Christ. And Peter came, and he's enjoying fellowship with them as well, getting to know these Gentiles and a group of Jewish believers came from James. This is the brother of Jesus. He would have been the de facto church leader in Jerusalem after the resurrection of Christ. Some of these brothers were of what is called the circumcision party. It was the same group who, after Peter had had some visions saying, the Gentiles can come to faith in Christ. Their food is no longer considered unclean. The circumcision party asked Peter, kind of, what's this about? And so they come... And they're naming the name of Jesus, but they're still clinging to Jewish ceremonial rites and laws. And when they come, they come saying, basically, if you want to be in the church, you really have got to become a Jew. If you want to have real right standing and fellowship with us, you've got to become a Jew. And Peter is afraid of them. And it led him to not treat his brothers well. And so there is a conflict that he and Paul have. So let's read Galatians 2, 11 through 14. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself. It's the same word as an army retreating out of fear. He drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Well, God, we come to you in Jesus' name as we begin to look at this conflict over race and righteousness. And God, our text couldn't come before us on a more appropriate Sunday when even in our own nation, tension, strife, and pain is at a high yet again. And there are broken responses from various sides to that pain. So God, we need your word and the gospel itself to inform us, your people, how to respond in moments such as these. For you have us here 
for moments such as these. So guide us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is a a big deal. It's a big deal. Paul, who writes in his letters about the importance of unity, Cephas comes and he says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. He drew back, fearing the circumcision party. Even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. See, it's not heresy. They're not teaching something false that they actually believe. They're teaching something that they know isn't true. Or they're acting out something that they know isn't true, but they do it anyway. Their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. This is a big fight and harsh words Peter has for a man, Paul has for a man he respects. Can you imagine? This is Cephas, one of the original twelve, one of Jesus' best friends, part of the inner circle of disciples along with James and John. He's one of the first two disciples that saw the empty tomb. Peter's this big, burly fisherman. When I close my eyes and imagine him, I imagine him as a man who was respected greatly probably had a really hairy back, big biceps, and a bald head, liked purple and gold. And here, here's Paul, not big by any stretch of the imagination, no hairy back, and probably a sharp dresser and a good theologian. Nice looking guy. I imagine it in my head, it would be like me going to talk to Gary about a problem. Now, I would never do that because, again, those arms are so big. If you don't know, just ask him and he will tell you. it's It's a problem for the church. And we cannot overstate how great a problem it is. So why does Paul oppose Peter to his face? It's for the sake of the truth of the gospel, and it's a gospel that impacts vertical reconciliation with God, and as we'll see in the text, horizontal reconciliation with people. It's a gospel that was planned to bring about horizontal and vertical reconciliation. It was purposed, willed, forethought, planned, decided, and acted upon by God in the incarnation, sinless life death and resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah. So what happened? What happened? And how must the Gentiles have felt? They're eating, they're having a good time, they're learning from Peter, they're enjoying table fellowship, which, by the way, was a big deal in the first century. It was a big deal for three reasons. One, because Peter had received a vision in Acts 10, we'll talk about a little later, saying, nothing I've made is unclean. All foods are clean to eat. And the Gentiles are welcome in. It was a big deal because their meals were a two or three hour event. Often before they shared the Lord's table together, it's where the church would come together and express their love for one another. It's a, it's a big deal because of, of our care for one another in Christ. And so, what would it have been like when the circumcision party and these brothers from James come in and they're 
looking at the Gentiles with disdain and they refuse table fellowship until these, these Gentile sinners line up with them and, and they want to compel them to be circumcised. And, and they're waiting and watching to see what their friends Peter and Barnabas are, are going to do. And, and they do nothing. But actually, it's not just that they do nothing. They actually draw back and refuse to eat. And I wonder what hurt them more. I wonder if it was the open disdain the Jews expressed or was it the silence of their friends who wouldn't come to be with them as brothers in Christ. And then I, then I wonder about the Jews. Was it an open disdain where they were just calling them Gentile sinners and demanding that they be circumcised? Or was it more subtle? They were the Jews. They had the Word of God. Galatians being the first New Testament book written. They had the Torah. They had the law. The quote, biblical worldview, so to speak. Was it a public and open disdain or did they say no we love we love these gentiles and we love them enough to tell them the truth that they need jesus and the law oh wait you want us to love them enough to sit at the table with them and eat their food no no we're not doing we're not doing that i, I wonder i wonder which it was it matters i think because bob roberts who's pastor of Northwood Church in Keller, Texas says, for the follower of Jesus, your faith is only as big or as small as your love. We are a religion defined by our love for our fellowship with one another. So there's a question that this text helps to answer, and I think we have to ask, was Peter's fear of man that led him to withdraw from this table fellowship or sitting down with his brothers to have a meal? Was the conflict over this and his fear of man, was it about race or was it about righteousness? Was it about ethnic pride or was it about religious pride? And the answer is yes. Yes. In the ancient Near East, and in fact today in the Middle East, these two are inseparable. They're inseparable. In the first century, to be an Israelite, to be a Hebrew, was to practice Judaism. It, it would be just like going to the Arabian Peninsula or going to Turkey today, and anyone there would tell you to be an Arab or to be a Turk is to be a Muslim. So there's a religious aspect of it that is very important that we will talk about, but there's also an ethnic aspect to it. When I saw this in the text, I thought, is this right? I want to look and see. And so I went and, and looked, what does Piper teach about this? What does Carson teach about this? What did Calvin teach about this? What did Augustine teach about this? What did Lightfoot or Boyce, these great theologians of the 20th century, 19th century, teach about this? And they'll all say, yes, there's an aspect of righteousness, but there's also this aspect of bigotry or race. So in the latter part of our text, we will see this works righteousness issue that Paul addresses. But for the Jew, race is the foundation of 
of his righteousness because the Jews were the sons of Abraham, the children of Abraham. Jesus is having an interaction with Jews in John 8. And he says to the Jews who had believed, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered, we are offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you'll become free? See, we're the We're the sons of Abraham. We're the sons of Abraham. Paul, when he's addressing his Jewish brothers in Acts 13, he says, men of Israel and you who fear God. Then he says, brothers and sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God. So there's the sons of Abraham and the Gentiles who fear God that he's talking to. To us has been sent the message of salvation It was a rub and it was a problem. Gary will teach us next week where Paul says in Galatians 3, 7, know that it's those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. It's not the Hebrews. It's those who trust Jesus. See, racial and ethnic identity were the foundation of works righteousness. In Philippians 3, we looked last week when Gary was teaching at verses 5 and 6 where Paul says, He had a zeal that moved him to persecute the church. He had a righteousness according to the law that was blameless. But in verse 4 and 5, before that, he says, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. Of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Well, his identity as an Israelite, is the foundation for his works righteousness. And so this circumcision party, how do we know that's about identity and not about works righteousness? The answer is this, that for well over 90% of Jewish men, though there were a few converts this wouldn't be true of, for well over 90% of Jewish men, circumcision, the marker of their Jewishness, was not an act of works righteousness. And we know that because it happened when they were eight days old. Eight-day-olds don't do works of righteousness. And if you did come to an eight-day-old and tell them what was about to happen to them, they would learn to walk and run. (laughs) See, this is about their identity as as being the people of God. Now, the, the problem is... God had told Israel in the Old Testament, I didn't choose you because there's anything special about you, but they came to think there was something special about themselves and and not just that God's hand was on them. And so Peter's problem on a macro level is this. He is not being the person he was purposed to be as an Israelite to take the message of God's saving power to the nations. We'll look in the Old Testament and see that it's there. On a micro level, he's letting the fear of man dictate what he does instead of love his brothers from another ethnicity. So the gospel is revolutionary in first century Judaism. And it's revolutionary in first century Judaism because of this. Number one, because it orients religious life around Jesus the Messiah instead of around the temple. And number two, 
it teaches that the people of God, there's now one new man that is a multi-ethnic gathering from among the nations. And the Jews had forgotten this, and they had co-opted God's mission for their own agenda. Pastor Garrett Keel, who's the pastor at Delray Baptist Church in Marina Del Rey, says that Babel, humanity flips the Lord's Prayer on its head. Instead of saying, hallowed be your name, we say, hallowed be our name. Our kingdom come, our will be done, make earth our heaven. Well, Babel's the prototype of what so many nations do, and the Jews had done this very thing. It had ceased to be about God's name and it had become about their name. It had become about their kingdom, ousting Rome, their will being done, making earth their heaven. But that was not what God intended for the Israelites. Even before Abraham was named Abram, when God called him, he said, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families, now that Hebrew word there, families, same word as tribes and nations, Abraham's family would become the nation of Israel. In you and in your offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The psalmist prayed in Psalm 67, God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, which he did to Israel. Why? So that your ways may be known on earth and your saving power among all the nations. Isaiah 49, 6. It is too light a thing that my servant, that would be Israel as a representative in the Messiah when he came, it would be too light a thing to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ came. Israel was to be a light to the nations and both ethnic and religious pride are issues because vertical and horizontal reconciliation are what Jesus came to bring. So that's why Paul opposes Peter, his actions are not in line with the gospel and the reconciliation it brings. See, the gospel of Jesus brings both vertical and horizontal reconciliation. Vertically, it reconciles us to God. Before knowing Christ, we're the enemies of God. We're children of wrath. We're dead in sin. But in Christ, we're made alive. We're saved by grace. We're adopted into his international, global, multi-generational family. Vertically, it reconciles us to God, and horizontally, it reconciles us to our neighbors. We become ministers of reconciliation in Christ. See, this is such a, a big deal for people to understand that five times in his letters, Paul either says, there is no more circumcised or uncircumcised Jew or Greek, or there is no Jew or Greek, or slave or free, or barbarian or Scythian. But Christ is overall and in all, we are one family. That's why Paul says of Peter, his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. 
because he wasn't expressing the horizontal reconciliation Jesus came to bring. And so he asked this question, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? How can you do this, Peter? And Peter knew better. In Acts chapter 10, he receives a vision not once but three times that is expressing to him and explaining to him that the Gentiles can now be part of God's family without being compelled toward Judaism but through faith in Jesus. He even says, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. And he goes on to say to him, to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness so that everyone, if Gary were here, he'd tell us that Greek word everyone means what? Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So Peter's a day and a half away from eating bacon wrap, pork tenderloin with his Gentile friends, having a great, great time. And the circumcision party comes in. And they want to compel Gentiles to live like Jews. They won't eat with them. They won't sit down with them. They won't treat them like they're their brothers unless they do it. And Peter's afraid. Peter's afraid. Paul presses the issue. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. That was a common phrase for Jews. See, the words Gentile and sinner were synonyms to the Jews. They just referred to them as the Gentile sinners, but we're Jews by birth. Again, it's about our ethnicity, and even we know a person's not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus. We're Jews by birth, and even we know this. Well, did the Jews know this? Should they have known this? That a person's not justified by the works of the law, that no one's made righteous, Well, Psalm 143, 2, about a thousand years before Jesus was born, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. It wasn't about works righteousness. It was about hope in the coming Messiah. Again, God says to Abraham, he starts Genesis 15 by saying, I will be your shield and your exceedingly great reward And Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is before the law is even given. It was always, always about hope in the Messiah. The law was good. It was given by God to help the Israelites see that they couldn't fulfill it. And they would have to hope in the Messiah who could, but they twisted it. And they co-opted it. There's a question, though, that comes up. If it's not by the law, and if we're all sinners and Christ saves sinners, then the question is this, Galatians 2.17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. No, because we are all sinners. Christ came to redeem us from our sin, or as Spurgeon said, Grace is the mother and nurse of holiness, not the apologist for sin. So no, being in Christ or living like the Gentiles, free in Christ, wouldn't make Christ the servant of sin. It would make him the redeemer. It would make him the redeemer. So what's the sin issue that Paul addresses really in verse 18 for himself and for Peter and for really any Israelite in Christ at the moment. 
He says, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor, or that is a lawbreaker. We don't want to eat with the Gentiles because they're lawbreakers, they're sinners. That's what the circumcision party was saying. But Paul makes this strange statement. If I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Well, what was Peter rebuilding that had been torn down? I think we can find the answer in another one of Paul's letters in Ephesians 2, 14 and 15. He says of Jesus, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, that's Jew and Gentile. He's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law. It's a law of commands and ordinances Commandments expressed in ordinances, rather, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, one family rather than Jew and Gentile, so making peace. The wall was broken down and Peter's building it back up. See, some walls are visible and other walls are are invisible, but no less tangible. If you looked in Joshua 6, you would read about a visible wall around Jericho. The Israelites walked around for seven days, blew a trumpet, and it fell down. It was a wall to keep people out. But see, along the streets of Jerusalem and Antioch, there was an invisible wall that ran right down the middle of every road so that if a Gentile was walking on one side and a Jew saw him, that Jew would get to the other side because Gentiles were unclean. If Gentiles are eating at a table, Jews aren't eating there. Gentiles are washing their hands. Jews aren't going to that fountain. They were unclean. They were unclean clean. Some walls are visible, some are invisible. Here's a picture of the Berlin Wall in 1989. In 1961, the East Germans built a wall around West Berlin, separating brother from brother, sister from sister, cousin from cousin, child from parent sometimes. They built this wall that ended up being 16 feet wide, several feet deep. And this is a picture, just a a short Week or weeks of time after Ronald Reagan stood at the Brandenburg Gate and made this iconic declaration to Mikhail Gorbachev, the then leader of Russia. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. And so freedom swept into Eastern Europe and brothers were reunited, families were reunited. See, some walls are visible. Others are invisible, but no less tangible. There was a time for some in our nation, though there weren't walls up, the signs were there that defined the walls that would tell you where you could use the restroom or where you could get a drink of water or where you could go to eat or what pool you could swim in or what seat you could sit on in the bus. And of course, laws came in that, that tore down those walls, right? And we don't, we don't have racial tension in America anymore, right? See, though the laws have changed any time, any time there are issues in our nation, 
where there is racial tension or strife or violence, we tend to divide right along racial and ethnic lines. You can look to the news media, you can look on social media, you can hear the conversations at the water cooler. And I'll tell you, our culture talks a lot about racial reconciliation, and I frankly... I'm very skeptical that outside Christ in our culture or any other, there will ever be racial reconciliation. See, we, the church, are a sign to the nations. And so while in culture there may never be racial reconciliation in the church, there must be, and I believe the word for us today is church, Tear down that wall. Tear down that wall. And it, it may come through someone you've worked with for years, but you've never thought, I wonder what it would be like for them to come in our home and have a meal and find out what life was like for them as they grew up. Or it may be at lunch or it may be at coffee. It, it will have to be through us being intentional about being the multi-ethnic people of God that the gospel came so that we could be. See, this, this matters. It matters. And the heart of the problem was that Peter was being motivated by the fear of men rather than love for brother and neighbor. He had forgotten that though different races, they were one family. Some of you know my family. Others of you don't. This is my family, I'm the, the pudgy guy kind of in the middle. My wife's a really good looking lady next to me. And then we've got our oldest daughter, Maddie, and our oldest, or our only daughter, Maddie, Lord please, and, uh, and our oldest son, Nate. And then God stirred in our hearts to adopt. And so we have become kind of a family that if, if it was a color picture, you could see we look like the menu at Starbucks. The little toothless wonder over there, that's Jeb. And he is our Rwandan dark roast. And then we got Mac and Will, and Will's kind of our medium roast with some sugar and cream. And when Maddie and I are tanned, we're kind of like caramel macchiato, which is appropriate because I'm by far the sweetest member of my family. And then Laura and Maddie and Mac, they're the blonde roast. And we are a multi-ethnic family by the grace of God through adoption. And we as the church must remember that we are one multi-ethnic family through adoption. So what's the issue that, that Paul is addressing here? And we talked about it being an issue of race, but it's not only an issue of race, it's also an issue of righteousness. Galatians 2.16 tells us, We know a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus. So we also have believed in Christ in order to be justified or made righteous by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. No one will be justified. That's why Paul's going to say in Galatians 2.19, Through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. It's because no one could be justified in God's sight through the law. Romans 3 verse 20 says it like this, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law, 
comes the knowledge of sin. The law was never meant to justify us. It was only meant to make us aware that we need a Messiah. It was like a tutor to guide us to Christ. The law brings knowledge of sin. Romans 3.23 All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the law brings knowledge of sin and we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. It's separation from God. We will not live according to the law. But the gift of God is eternal life by faith in Jesus Christ who who loved us so much that while we were ungodly, Christ died for us. While we were failing to live according to the law, Christ died for us. See, those justified in Jesus abandoned their former grounds of hope. And for the Jew, for the Jew who Paul's talking to in Galatians 2, Those two former grounds of hope were this. Number one, it was ethnic and national pride in who they were. They thought they were the greatest nation on earth, more special than any other. But God had told them hundreds of years before, I didn't set my love upon you or choose you because of anything special in you. It was for His name's sake that His name might be known, that they might spread His saving power so they couldn't hope in their ethnic and national pride. But second, they also couldn't hope in their adherence to the law because as we've just read in Romans and as Galatians also tells us, no one is justified through the works of the law. We're justified by faith in or through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. They had all failed at that. So Paul died to the law. He recognized it couldn't bring him to Christ and he died to it through its revealing this to him so that he might live to God in Jesus. Or as he says in verse 20 of chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. See, Paul says... That Hebrew of Hebrews from the tribe of Benjamin, he's dead. He was crucified. That guy who, as to his zeal, was a persecutor of the church. He was a Pharisee as far as the law goes and according to righteousness by the law. He was blameless. That that guy was crucified. I've been crucified with Christ. My identity is no longer found in my ethnicity or in my works of the law, but it's found in Christ. So now the life I'm living, I'm living by faith in Jesus. Life can only be in step with the gospel when it's lived by faith in Jesus who loved us, whether Jew or Gentile, and gave Himself up for us all. I've been crucified. So a couple of things. Number one, Paul's identity as one of the chosen people of God could no longer be oriented around his race, but rather it was around the Messiah and being part of his new multi-ethnic community united in Christ. So again, Paul's identity as one of the chosen people of God could no longer be oriented around his race, rather around the Messiah 
and being part of His new multi-ethnic community, united in Christ. So that's Paul's identity, but then there's also his righteousness. It was no longer oriented around works of the law through which he could earn God's favor, but rather by faith in and through the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah. So Paul's identity, he's been crucified to that and his righteousness he's been crucified to. It was no longer oriented around works of the law through which he could earn God's favor. Rather, by faith in and through the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah. Jesus didn't die in vain. See, Paul ends chapter 2 by saying, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. But Christ didn't die for no purpose. Jesus died to draw God's people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to Himself. But He also died to draw His people to one another, to break down that dividing wall of hostility. Jesus didn't die in vain. In the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel, We find hope for peace with God, vertical reconciliation, and peace with people, horizontal reconciliation. God, we thank You for these realities that we've seen today. God, we thank You for Your great love for us that has united us with Christ and now unites us with one another. And Father, we thank You that Jesus tore down the dividing wall of hostility that stood against us, that kept us separate. And now we are one. He is out of the two, the Jew and the Gentile who are separated. He's made one new man. So that in the church, there aren't Jews and Gentiles separated from one another. There aren't Caucasians and Hispanics and Asians and African Americans separated from one another. God, help us as the church to be a people who tear down that wall. And help us as a united people of God to be a sign to our culture and to the world of the unity we have in Christ and the goodness of God expressed to us in that. Father, help us to be transformed in such a way, God, that we would walk alongside, love, encourage, sympathize with, and care for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And God, for people who are listening to this who might be hoping that they'll be good enough or hoping that their works will be right enough to to earn your favor, God, would you help them to see the folly of their thinking and to recognize your goodness and love for them shown in this reality that Jesus died for their sins according to the Scripture, and He rose from the dead according to the Scripture, that we all might have new life and be part of His new family through His death and His resurrection. God, bring people to Yourself today for Your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, Amen.